Welcome to Forge Comics. Your one-stop shop for discovering more about comic book characters, stories, and general analysis of these epic tales. So join us on this journey across mediums and multiverses to learn more about the amazing world of comics. I'm Trey. This is Jojo. And I'm Petey. All right, guys, welcome back. Going to roll right into some comic news for this week. Going to start off with the DC League of Super Pets. That's coming out. I'm actually not positive off the top of my head if it's going to be a show or a movie, but I do know that it involves anthropomorphic animals and The Rock and Kevin Hart. So I'm here for it. And Zack Snyder is back in the anime game. He's making a new anime based on Norse mythology. They've already cast all of the big hitters, including Loki, Thor, and Odin, among others. And I believe it's going to be uh, more accurate than the Marvel kind of adaptation where Hela's a sister and all that other non-accurate stuff that Marvel threw in there. So I'm pretty excited for both of those things. Hela was just a cover-up because Thor's the real villain. <laughs> yeah, that's I like that. That's like your big shtick on this podcast is like, what are, you just were talking about something else. You're like, but guys, what about that time that Thor committed suicide? We're like, Chris well, that's Hemsworth cool. We wouldn't were, do that. Don't, we were don't, talking about other stuff, but wait, what? Chris Hemsworth wouldn't do that. No, he wouldn't. Plus, the, the Thor Thor Ragnarok's probably one of my favorite it's movies. Wait, sorry, hold alone. on. Chris Hemsworth did do it. What would that happened? Like Thor one, I think. No, he kills a lot of people. Yeah. Anyway, we digress. <laughs> this Let's is just... your whole thing. You don't even have an <laughs> argument. <laughs> I don't, I don't want to get into it now. It's not my whole thing. It's just, yeah. We can have just... another, another podcast about it someday. <laughs> is Thor a genocidal maniac? That's the new podcast title for next week. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> short answer yes <laughs> but he's hot exactly. he, that's him? not the important question the important question is is he killing people with his shirt off or on that's what people want to know about but Ooh. have you seen him like he looks bigger than he did in ragnarok and it's because he's gonna do a hulk hogan movie as well so that's he's like two birds with one stone he's just like i'm gonna look like hulk hogan so They've already superimposed his face over like a bunch of Hulk Hogan clips, and it actually looks really awesome. Yeah, I'm excited. So for that's that. exciting. Which you know, I, I think that that that's kind of valid for for comic book news. Sure, go check that out. <laughs> <laughs> but in other news, um, this is actually pretty cool. So there's going to be a Batwing in the CW Arrowverse. So it's going to be Luke Fox, uh, Lucius Fox's son. But what's even cooler than that? is the guy that's playing him, Cameron Johnson, he actually just tweeted a couple days ago. He says, the same day that a DC comic book I wrote hit the shelves about one of the coolest superheroes ever made. So pretty cool that he wrote a comic for DC and that it was published. He was also officially announced that he'd be playing that hero in Arrowverse. He, so, wrote, he wrote about Batwing? He wrote Batwing? Yeah. That's really cool. Yeah, so this is Cameras Johnson. Go, so go check him out. Go follow him because even if you're not into like Arrowverse or any of the CW shows, I think that's pretty awesome that yeah. they were they did that. So I, I do have a question. What, Petey, you're probably more up on this than than I am. Wasn't he Batman for a brief period in the comics? There was like a new 
black Batman with a high tech suit, and it was Luke. So, Fox. good question. It's actually not Luke Fox. It's his brother Jace Fox. Um, what? It's, he, I swear, they it's it a big Luke. twist. Uh, so it's a, it's a big, but I mean it's <laughs> it, happened, it happened months ago, so it's fine. Oh, wow. But like, because and DC was stupid. But this is off topic, kind of. But it was in Future State, and the whole big thing was like, there's a new Batman. No one knows who he is. Everyone assumed it was Luke Fox. They kind of lead you down that path. So then the comic series, it was a big twist. But before the whole thing happened, DC had announced, hey, Jace Fox is going to be the new Batman. So separately in media, they had announced it. And then in the comic series, they tried to like swing it as a twist, but they had already announced who it was. So is it one of those things? Is it one of those things where nobody even knew that the Luke Fox had another brother and they're like, oh, it's my long lost brother that you've never heard of. Yep. You know what, I, dude, you yeah. love DC, but you have a lot of reservations. I have not gotten over um, Arkham Knight, where they kept saying like, "It's a brand new villain, it's a brand new character, no one's ever heard of." And then like halfway through the game, he takes his and it's sick design, sick design. Halfway through the game, he takes his helmet off, and it's Jason Todd, Red Hood. Why do they keep doing this? Like, it's okay if it's Jason Todd, but don't oversell it. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I feel you on that. I. I think Batwing is honestly awesome, just as Batwing. So I'm fine with him. I think it's gonna be good in Arrowverse. But so Jace Jace Fox is still Batman though. So there's still a Black Batman. Uh, in Future State, he's not as far, he's not currently in Infinite Frontier, as far as I know. That's confusing. I don't know what either of those. Sorry. Are. But, <laughs> so okay. Yeah. So no no on, on the, no on the Black Batman. Uh, I felt kind of sad when I saw that he was Batwing because I thought we had a Black Batman. But whatever. All right, moving on. Uh, okay. Uh, I got a couple things to say. One thing I'm really excited about. So one of the uh, YouTube channels that first got me into like actually diving into comics more was um, Variant Comics on YouTube. Check them out for sure. They are probably the biggest fan based comic like channel on YouTube, in my opinion. Um, They actually announced they're going to be they've written a comic and it's coming out in July. It's called Astonishing Times. And it's supposed to be basically the opposite of Watchmen where they highlight um just like the foundation of heroism and everything so excited about that should be really good they have a cool trailer on youtube that you should go check out awesome thanks guys so rolling into our main discussion today we've hinted at this topic a couple of times definitely touched on it very easy topic to transition to just based on the series and shows that we've covered so far but today we wanted to dive a little bit deeper into fatherhood from the perspective of comic books kind of as a recap of who we've talked about one of the main father figures we've discussed so far in in pretty deep depth was omni-man the father of mark we've talked about some of the pros and cons of his approach to parenting where he kind of succeeded as a dad setting high expectations working with mark and then i mean there's some obvious areas where he could have improved could have done better you know, screaming at your son after you've mangled him on the side of the road, screaming, think, Mark, think, you know, there's, there's, there's definitely room for growth, but we're going to go into his style a little bit more, but he's probably one of the main top two or three father figures we've discussed so far, at least. Yeah. And then we have utopian, um, which is interesting because it's, it's different to invincible and Omni-Man because I would say that from comic to um, TV, it's a little closer in the adaptation, whereas I think the the series for Jupiter's Legacy, it had a lot of hit and misses. Um, one thing that I 
I did like is in the series, I thought it did a better job of showing uh, utopian struggle as a father and his expectations for his kids, um, especially his son, because, you know, his son hears him saying that he'll never live up to, to his expectation. And then Chloe is completely rebellious and is, is totally against it. So there's kind of that balance between the great expectations and you being so attached to your own code of conducts and morality that it jeopardizes your role as a parent. So being perfect as a hero, but imperfect as uh, your role as a father. Yeah, and one thing we want to do tonight, uh, in addition to talking about these characters, we want to help kind of define um, the different types of fathers that are out there. Uh, so we want to look at this, as always, kind of with an academic perspective. So we're going to talk a little bit about some series that we've read this week, and then we're going to break down uh, some of the parenting styles that we see specifically relating to fathers. Um, and the ones that we really want to dive into, just so you guys can kind of get a feel for this, um, if you've got any psych psychology nerds out there, uh, the four parenting styles that are kind of the foundation of all parenting uh, parenting structures, I guess you could say, or theories, is that there's authoritarian, authoritarian, uh, permissive, authoritative, and uninvolved. Uh, so those are kind of the four styles that we see that are the foundation for parenting. And so we're going to kind of classify where a lot of these characters uh, are defined and basically which one of these makes for a good father and which ones usually make for a bad father. So one of the things that I want to do in addition is look at this with an academic perspective. So rather than just talking about the characters, we want to give some weight to it, uh, some scholarly weight. So I want to talk a little bit about the four different types of parenting we have. So we're going to go through and mention those just so you can think about that as we talk about these characters and we'll come back and uh, classify them more. Uh, but the first one we have is authoritarian which the base definition is you believe in rules above all else. Discipline is non-negotiable, no matter what feelings are involved. Um, the con to that is that kids don't usually feel valued. There's also the permissive parent, which is basically rules are non-existent. Uh, the con to that is most likely to have kids who struggle academically. Uh, then kind of the crowning jewel of all of them is the authoritative. And you're all about setting expectations and providing the resources that kids need to meet these expectations. So you're a believer in boundaries and consequences, uh, and the why is something that's very important to you. These are usually renowned as the most uh, responsible parents and are going to have the best responsible kids. Uh, the last one is the uninvolved parent, which is basically they're just not present at all. And kids will always struggle with self-esteem amongst many other things with having uninvolved parents and specifically for this discussion, fathers. So those are the kind of the four classifications um, that we're going to get into again, just really quick, authoritarian, permissive, authoritative, and uninvolved. So keep that in the back of your mind while I talk about cable and then we'll come back to these after. What's funny is when, when we, you kind of brought this to the table, Pete, to discuss these four different types, I thought there would be pros and cons to each and you would, you would see kind of the, the justification for being tempted to go one way or the other, but it seems pretty obvious which yeah. one your parents. <laughs> and it is, <clears throat> it's funny because I tried to find pros and cons and it was pretty hard to find. It was like, no, there's one right way of doing this according to psychologists. Yeah, and I think what'll be interesting here is I think as we discuss these parents, specifically fathers in this issue, as we are coming up on Father's Day, I think the key will be kind of discussing maybe which two 
they're inclined towards. Maybe, maybe they might exemplify one to an extreme, but yeah, I think most parents are going to want to strive for authoritative, but maybe they don't even come close, you know? So let's, let's keep in mind, there's probably shades of gray here because I do, I would feel bad if we just slammed a couple of parents yeah. and put others on pedestals that wouldn't make for, uh, we probably make some enemies and I, I maybe, maybe I'll go this whole issue without talking about Batman, but don't get your hopes up. So the reading for this week, guys, I am so excited to talk about this. This was one of the first comics that I really dove into for me personally, I'm going to ask you this question later, so no need to respond right now. When I think of fatherhood in comics, I think about Cable. I, I think he's one of the best parents in comics, but the reason he comes to mind so quickly for me is because of how detailed this story goes into what it looks like to raise a child. Other people are parents. Other comic book superheroes are good parents, bad parents, involved parents, whatever, but so so unique to this story is the journey that cable and hope go on over 17 years basically just one-on-one and the story we're going to talk about today is part of the messiah complex and it's the path and the journey that cable and hope go on so kind of as a preliminary information basically after house of m scarlet witch as we've discussed in the past kind of due to trauma grief all that kind of goes a little off the deep end feels like mutants are the pro- source of all of her problems and in kind of a the middle of a giant power surge basically says fine no more mutants and it's a little bit gray what happens but basically at after that moment a lot of people's mutations disappeared there were significantly fewer mutants on the earth and no more mutants were being born so the mutant race cyclops xavier immediately went into action mode realized that they're their entire species was going to go extinct and ultimately come to the conclusion that this one child who was born was the key to reactivating the mutant gene among, among the people on earth. A lot of gray area, a lot of exposition to get to that point, but that's the gist. And that's kind of our starting point for, for Messiah complex. So here's where cable comes in. So cable, for those of you who don't know, was the son of Cyclops and Jean Grey, sort of. Uh, that's a discussion for another time. It's actually a Jean Grey clone, but he's their son and he is sent to the future because of an advanced technological, basically, cancer that he has. So he's sent to the future because this virus is basically taking over his body. And ultimately, when they finally realize that they need help, they need to send him to the future. At this point, he's already got his entire left arm turned into metal completely, which is... Uh, not necessarily a bad thing, but when he goes to the future, he, he has a very, very powerful telekinetic telepathic abilities. And what the clan that he's raised by teaches him is how to hone and use about 90 to 95% of his telepathic abilities or telekinetic abilities, excuse me, passively and internally to keep the cancer at bay. So essentially what you've got is an omega level mutant who spends 95% of his time fighting off a disease and thus is only able to use five to 10% of his telekinetic powers, which when you see what Cable's actually capable of doing, it makes you really realize what, what, he's, <laughs> what he would be able to do if he were to just let go of the cancer or at some point be cured of the cancer. But, but that's the gist. And he's raised in a future where there's just war after war. He's like the ultimate soldier, very 90s character, big gun, metal arm, shows up in the background, kind of looks like the Terminator. He's grizzled. He's got gray hair, scars everywhere. And, th- and that's a pretty pretty spot on description of cable guys any anything character wise that you feel like you want to add to that i think you're saying that he's 
a classic 90s character is perfect. Uh, it was actually one of the turnoffs for me when I first got introduced to Cable was I was like, oh, he's just one of those 90s characters who's just grunge and hard metal and super heavy and Terminator-esque. But uh, they've done a really good job over the years to change the narration to make it so he's actually a very intriguing character. And what's super interesting, Pete made a good point. It, it, it's kind of a soft retcon that they did gradually because ultimately he, he was a very involved character. He was in the X-Men, the animated series. He's been around a lot. Uh, and there's a super interesting thing that happens recently where a young Cable ends up having to kill the current old grizzled big gunned Cable and the current Marvel timeline. And the X-Men are doing a lot of things right now in 2021. And the current timeline sees like a young 18-year-old Cable and he's awesome. He's got a new design. He's a spunky kid. He's super well-trained. He uses his powers, but he's a kid and he's got sass. He's got attitude. And it's kind of like, if you liked Cable and you wanted to see him open up, this is kind of what you'd get. And he uses swords and it's, it's awesome. So check that out. If, if you're curious what happens to him kind of after the story we're going to discuss. So that's kind of an introduction to Cable. Cable also has the ability to time travel, which is how he gets back into the past at this point where they find this baby who is the key to saving the future. Only he didn't, he wasn't the only person to come back from the future with the baby named hope in mind. There's another mutant named Bishop who had come back from the future and was playing the long game was part of the X-Men and was waiting because he was from a future where a baby named hope grew up and ultimately her actions led to the genocide of mutants. And he basically was raised in a concentration camp for mutants. So what's interesting here is you have two people who are from different futures and for the, their own specific reasons want to change those futures. And that all centers around baby hope. So luckily for hope cable gets there first. He takes the baby from his father. Always a super interesting conversation when Scott Summers is around his kid. Scott Summers Cyclops and his kid have a very, very interesting dynamic because his son is older than him and more seasoned than him. And often they're both great leaders, but you know, cable may even be a better leader than, than Scott. And so Cable jumps into the future. And after jumping into the future and being chased by Bishop, who has basically made it clear now his life goal is to kill the baby so that his future never happens. And what happens after one of their first encounters is Cable's time travel device breaks and he's only capable of jumping forward, which creates a very interesting situation where he'll jump forward, raise hope for a series of months, maybe a year, a couple of years at, a, at certain points, Cable, Bishop will catch up to them. Cable will fight him off, sometimes with help, and then jump again. And you, you see them jump 20, 30, hundreds, I think a, like a thousand years into the future at one point. And it's fascinating. The world just gets worse and worse. And Bishop gets more desperate. And he's, he's killing people. And he's saying, look, I'm sorry I have to kill you. You're in my way, though. And as long as I can get to hope and kill her, this future will never happen. This, it's very interesting dynamic. Very, you, you see once they flash back to where Bishop is from in the future, you, you see where he's coming from and why he might feel that the life of one person is worth it to prevent the genocide that he experienced. But it's usually not one person. He basically, he basically becomes the very thing he's trying to stop, right, in a sense. So, I mean, it's a great story. Don't get me wrong. I'm not, I'm not trying to discredit that because you can see both sides of it. But if you were to look at it from 
just a straight on perspective, big picture, you kind of just question Bishop's sanity um, sure. because he, yeah, he's just bloodthirsty for hope. So what's fascinating is, is you, you question his sanity right along with Bishop. I mean, more than once he verbally questions his own motivation, hesitates when he has the chance to kill hope because at the end of the day, he's still trying to kill a baby and it's, it's awesome. I mean, you really do empathize with him. He's a, he's a, he's a tortured character for sure. The whole narrative of this story is honestly incredible. Uh, I've been excited to do this reading for a while. Uh, I've all cable's been a character I've been interested in. I've read things here and there with him, but nothing diving into his actual personality, his character. And this story is amazing. I think the time traveling aspect to it, the fact that he's raising a kid, uh, for 17 years, but not chronologically. He lives in a one time period, like Trey said, then runs to the next time period. And you see him make these jumps while raising hope and hope is raised in a society now where everywhere she's going, it's a dystopian, a different type of dystopian. So she's literally on the run for 17 years through time. And as a huge sci-fi junkie and as a huge back to the future fan, this idea of time travel and the idea of how much length Cable goes to to save hope. It's honestly, I, I told Trey after I read it, I think it's my favorite Marvel story I've ever read. I really enjoyed it. I, I can't say Cable's my favorite character because I don't personally feel like I relate to him as much, but just the story, the writing, uh, Cable's relationship with hope, everything is just incredible. Uh, and if I read more Cable, I might come back and say I relate to him more than I do with other characters. But for now, the story's amazing. So Messiah Complex was a good one. Yeah, and I think it's worth mentioning that Cable and Hope's journey and Bishop's journey as well is only a fraction of the Messiah Complex, which is by far one of the best stories, in my opinion, that Marvel's ever written. You even get the Avengers coming in at the end and not in like a, um, how do you say that? Do Deus Ex Machina? Yeah. yeah, not in like a Luke Skywalker type way. Don't talk but, to me about that. <laughs> but it works. You know, there's a big bat at the end that they, you know, mutants are on the edge of extinction and the Avengers come in and they help. But, you know, it's not, I, I respect that a lot. Actually, it's not actually a direct result of, you know, their involvement. What, what Actually, what's awesome about this story is you watch Cable raise hope. You watch several times. So Cable is getting older, right? He's they're living he's already old he's probably in his 50s and then he's 17 years past around the time when she's probably like 10 they 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 teleport somewhere and cable's in a bad spot i mean Mo, i lost count of how many times that he literally jumps in front of her to take a bullet the guy gets shot like a hundred times over the course of this story and they, they they jump once and he basically is like dying and she's i want to say like 11 and she she wakes up and she looks at Cable and she realizes that he's going to die if she doesn't do something. And so she starts running through the training that he's given her. And it's really cool to see. She's like, okay, Cable would like, she always calls him Nathan, first of all. So she's Nathan would want me to do X. So she looks around, she does it. She finds a place that may have water. She goes over there and she just time after time applies the training and, and she bails them out of a lot of different situations. And it's, it's really cool to see this snapshot of like his efforts as a parent pay off because his mission was just to keep her alive you know nobody and then nobody knew how long he'd have to do it for but also i don't know that anybody said to him like hey you're gonna have to be her dad set a good example 
you know, razor, right. You know, he just did that on his own. Yeah. One thing I think is really cool about this too, is you see it from the beginning, right? You see hope as a baby and you get snapshots of their life as he's raising her. And when I first started reading it, I was like, well, I mean, hope's not really, I mean, hope's not his daughter. It's just a ward that he's assigned to take care of. But I think you see them develop this relationship over the years, which again, it's a reclassification of what a father is. And I think you see hope have some great character moments, but it's all as a result of Cable's, um, Cable's training and the way Cable's raised her. So you see a lot of their relationship grow. Uh, one of my favorite things is the whole time she calls him Nathan. And one of the greatest things you see is at the very end when you see her start to call him dad. And so hearing that, that switch from this is someone who's taking care of me to this is my father figure is it was, it was touching, <laughs> which I know sounds super cliche, but it was straight out of a Hallmark card with, you know, guns and metal arms and the best Hallmark movie I wish they would make. So I don't have to watch any more of them. A nineties Hallmark movie. Oh with- man, what I wish please this Christmas, a Christmas with cable. There it is. A, cable, a very cable <laughs> Christmas. I, I just adding to that. I think what makes it so great is that, you know, that cable struggling, but he's striving to do the best that he can. Um, and there's even a point where, and I can't remember which issue it was, but um, where she, the, when they're jumping, she struggles away from him because she doesn't want to leave. And she gets thrown into, uh, I think, two years ahead of him. Two years in the past. Oh, two years in the past. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah, that makes sense. So she gets thrown two years in the past and, and she's going through this. But after the moment after it happens, I think it was amazing to see. And obviously this is this is written, right? So it wasn't you know, he definitely could have had a different reaction if he were a, a, a real human being. But I like the way they write it. It says, um, he forgets she's just a kid and from time to time will do childish things, but he's the adult. He's supposed to save her from her childish mistakes. And even the shot, it kind of has him on one knee kind of looking down. And it's more so him taking the responsibility instead of putting the blame on either the situation or on hope herself. And I, I think that that speaks volumes to kind of the growth in Cable and really is kind of the first step, I think, in striving to, to take on more of that loving role rather than that protective role. Yeah, if I can interject really quick, I think off of that growth, there's another panel that I snapshotted. Uh, the first couple issues you see Hope as a baby and this whole time he says, I'm a shoulder, I'm a soldier, I'm trained for everything. And then he shows him changing a diaper. And it's like, except for this. And you see that several different times on several different classic fatherhood moments, right? Changing a diaper, chasing after your kid, whatever it is. Uh, but one of the moments that I was like, it's the art is beautiful. The dialogue is just amazing. It's he's made a little doll for her out of metal, out of like a tin can. I'm gonna show you guys so you guys can at least kind of see what I'm getting at. Um, basically he makes a dolphin out of a tin can and he says, I'm trained for everything. I'm a soldier. And then you see the rest of the panel and it says maybe even this. And as it's, as he's handing her like this doll showing that he's starting to, to care for her. Um, like Jojo was saying, kind of moving slowly. I think this is the first time you see him move from that position of, I need to take care of this 
messiah for our race to I need to take care of this creature, this person that I'm starting to care for. Yeah, no, I mean, the growth is not just on hope's end for sure. And I would say Bishop even grows um, through the story and maybe not always positively, but what's really interesting is, is watching cable strategies pay off. And really, I mean, has, has a, even in a literature, has any parent raised a child under more strenuous circumstances? <laughs> I mean, maybe, but I haven't read the book or seen the movie. I mean, this is about as crazy as it gets. You know, like 17 year manhunt. It's wild. And it's cool because they change places. They change, they change time periods and they deal with time travel in a way that's very relatable. Like, um, like when she travels two years in the past and he just has to go find her, like, he understands that the two years will have passed in like a moment for him, but for her, two years have passed. So it's, I, this is, I guess this is the bar for me as far as how to portray time travel. And I'm hoping that Loki can, can keep up with this because I, I liked this angle on time travel. And I guess to wrap up the recap a little bit, the conclusion of this story, you kind of find out the big bad who is trying to exterminate the mutants to some extent knows that hope is the secret she doesn't even really know there's there's little glimpses where her powers were somewhat manifest she'll she'll do something that kind of feels lucky or she'll have an inclination her powers are very ambiguous throughout this storyline and only really get fleshed out after this storyline but towards the end basically he's he literally is raising her until she feels ready to go back into the past and fix stuff fix the timeline essentially so they have this discussion he says literally like hope the day that you're ready tell me we'll make preparations and we'll go back in time once he fixes his time traveling and once she makes that decision, they go back, they work with the X-Men who are basically on the ropes and, and ultimately she saves the day thanks to Cable's sacrifice and he does die. And it's a really emotional scene. And one of the best things about this story is, is you get the full scope of Scott Summers Cyclops as a leader where he does get his hands dirty and he has a, he has a team called X-Force that involves Cable and Domino and Wolverine who, who kind of, do all the ugly stuff to make sure that the good guys win. And you really get to see a lot of characters in a holistic view. And I really like that. And essentially Cable follows his dad's leadership and goes on a suicide mission to save the mutants. And he does. And his sacrifice triggers kind of the catalyst that sets hope off to realizing her powers. And she basically accepts her powers and just dominates everyone who was attacking the mutants it very, she made it look easy really and, and so that was kind of the culmination of of cable's 17 year dying mission to to raise hope to be the mutant that would save the day and she did and she grieves and you see that and and scott summers grieves I mean, scott summers sent his own son on a suicide mission knowing it was a suicide mission and has to deal with that and they have to deal with it together and she hates him for a while and it's it's all fleshed out here. And this is probably one of the best family-based comic books I've ever read. But the key, I guess, if I could wrap up that recap is once he dies, you get some of the best flashbacks from Hope's childhood. She starts to flash back to probably what's probably her top five moments with her dad, where he taught her what it means to trust yourself, to trust your abilities, to be prepared. And they have these moments over, uh, you know, by a fireside where they're cooking a rat or whatever they did in this dystopian future, you know, the, the few moments where they got to sit down and be a family. And those are really touching. 
And, and it's really touching to see the end product as Cable dies. You know, he raised her right and she's going to save the future. And it's it's awesome. Any other thoughts on the recap, Cable Sacrifice, anything anything there? No, just highly recommend because honestly, like I binged it today, probably out of more, most likely out of necessity, but I joy, enjoyed like every second of it. So it was totally worth it. Yeah, I was telling, I was telling you guys that uh, I actually texted, I'll confess to Trey, I actually texted Jojo, I think it was Wednesday, and I was like, how far are you on the reading? And he goes, I haven't read any of it. And I was like, I've read a couple issues, but I haven't read enough either. And then when I, I'd read a little bit and I had enjoyed it. Um, but then once I got deeper into it, I binged it in two days, not one day, but it was still pretty heavy to read all of it in two days. I'm like, man, this is something I want to revisit and, you know, read over maybe a two month period of time where I can actually, I mean, I want to dive into it. And I feel like I got a really good idea of the whole story, but I want to be able to dive into it more and actually like analyze each panel and really look into this story. Cause it was just so good. And it branches off well too. Uh, yeah. If Cable did pique your interest through this story, I would recommend uh, reading the Messiah Complex, and it'll 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 do a really good job of summarizing his journey with Hope without making you read all twenty four issues of Cable. But I would also recommend as an offshoot the Cable and Deadpool series, where that really goes into his character even further, and and probably the two best. I've read most of what Cable's been in since two thousand, so those are my my two recommendations. So where do you guys think Cable ranks among the pantheon of comic book fathers? I mean, just what he went through, right? The, the scenarios and, and how much he was willing to sacrifice to go through. I got to say, he's, he's got to be up there, like one of the top ones, right? And maybe, maybe he's not just because of popularity. Um, but if you're just taking the story itself, like, as as you mentioned, Trey, you know he, the amount he goes through, there's probably no other father figure or person that has had to endure <laughs> so much. Yeah, I, when I first started reading this and I saw him just taking care of the baby, uh, I was like, you know, I I'm really I'm not sure I'm going to see him taking on that fatherhood role. Taking care of a kid for 17 years does not count as being a father, in my opinion. But then you get those moments of him actually training and teaching. I mean, um, we're talking about the different types of parenting and, you know, just being there for them without providing that that teachings and those opportunities to be with them isn't being a father. But you get that with Cable. He does that with Hope the whole way through. And when I saw that, I was like, dang it, Trey's right. He is really good. <laughs> like, I wanted to be able to defy him and say, well, it's not there, but he's he's up there for me. And this is hard for me to even say because, I mean, I'm coming into this with years of other father figures in comics who I've always, you know, held to high regard. Um, and I still do. But I think Cable, even after reading just so little of him, has reached the top of the bar. Maybe not the very top. I'd have to sit on it longer. But again, Jojo said it. No one else has sacrificed that much to be a father, I don't think. I mean, he sacrificed himself, too. So yeah. I think that, I mean, willingly, too. Yeah, and I think there's two ways to look at this. Where does Cable himself rank as a father? And I think there's, you know, it's top few easily. There's probably not much debate that he's in the top few. But if I asked you, where does this story rank about fatherhood in comics? 
can you guys think of anything else? It, for me, it's the top. I mean, I, we could have a discussion that there's maybe somebody else who's who's possibly a better dad. But if you want a story about a man raising a child through comics, yeah, this is it for me. This is the number one recommendation I could make. Yeah, and as we discussed earlier, Trey, because I, I, I do, I really do like Bishop as a character, but I, I had some kind of things that that rubbed me the wrong way. And then you said you're like, but that's not the point. The point of the story is is it being about you know cable story and, and fatherhood and, and things like that. And that's totally true. Like, if there's one thing that you take away from this, it's fatherhood, and it's the relationship that a father has with with their child and more specifically with with a daughter um and so yeah i would i would have to agree with you it, it would definitely be the top top of the crop especially of the ones i've read so <laughs> that doesn't better than utopian <laughs> yeah it doesn't that probably doesn't carry a lot of weight but <laughs> i think i think for me it's it's different because so when i think before when i thought of the pinnacle of um comic book fathers it's actually Jonathan Kent, Pa Kent, just because obviously to create Superman and to do the the nature of that obviously is great. Um, but they're moments in, in, in the series. You know what I mean? You're not getting a whole 25-issue series about being a father. It's, oh, Clark goes back to Smallville for a couple issues. You see him have these moments with his father that motivate him to go back and be the hero he needs to be. So those types of moments you see but they're over, you know, you get one speckle throughout a, a bunch of series. Whereas with this, it's no, the whole story through and through is about Cable being a great father. Yeah, and I think what struck me, probably one of the biggest takeaways for me was the sacrifices he would have to make to put hope first. And, and a lot of times that was the cliche, she's a baby strapped to his chest take the bullet for her. But it did get more complicated as the story went on. It eventually became choosing hope over other people he cared about. And the actual Messiah complex compilation didn't quite go into that much detail about the girl, Sophie, that he meets. Sophie's a waitress that he meets at one point who actually, she has say, I don't know if she saved his life. She helped him. She bandaged his wounds up and she drove him away from a dangerous area. And then in return, he kind of helped her stage a rebellion and she, when he comes back in time at the end, because there's like a kind of a, a whole run through where they overshoot and then go forward a bunch of times. And he goes back to that point and she's full on leading a rebellion, helps him out again. And then something happens and Cable has the choice to make. He's only able to save one of, of the two, Hope or this friend who saved him. And he has to make the decision to choose Hope. And that's not the only time he does that. He has to save Hope over a woman he loves that helps him raise hope for five years uh, over his friends, over family, over himself. And that's, I mean, it's hard to watch people die. I'm not, you know, I'm not saying it was, you know, I'm sure it was an easy decision on some level for him. You choose your, your kid, you choose your mission in this instance, but the emotional toll that would, that would rack up, you know, other people died because you chose hope. So you really like the stakes just keep getting higher and higher. And he handles it with, you know, he's the ultimate, he's the ultimate soldier. And they, and they cover that in his final, his, uh, in his funeral, you know, so it's, which is also a really touching scene. So there were two parents that I want to focus on, two fathers, uh, Cable and Scott Cyclops, Scott Summers. So I'm not sure if you guys saw enough of him to, to comment too much, but, but I wanted to get at least some initial thoughts. 
of those four parenting styles that we discussed earlier, which ones do you see from Cable and Scott in his limited time as a dad in the show, in the comics? And which ones do you see, maybe which two do you see them tempted towards? Scott's an interesting one because he doesn't have the opportunity to be there the whole time. And he's already in that leadership position. So I think naturally he does look at Cable or Nathan as, as his son, but also as, as an asset to his team, which can be a hard, it can be hard to define those lines and you have to figure out, okay, how do you treat your son while treating him also as a soldier, as someone who can help you. And so I think in that regard, I think he's, he's trying to be authoritative, but he is leaning toward authoritarian to some extent because he's giving him missions. He's telling him what to do. He's expecting a lot from him. Um, I think he does a, a good job. I'm not saying that Scott Summers is a bad dad by any means, but trying to classify this, I think it's, uh, like you were saying earlier, trades a little black and white to say, oh, somebody's authoritative and somebody isn't. I think there's a lot of overlap. I think most parents try to be authoritative, but that doesn't mean they're going to reach it. And I think Scott Summers falls short um, in that regard uh, due to the circumstances of the situation with his son. I think Cable pretty much hits authoritative. As you mentioned, you see Hope taking on things by herself as a result of uh, what her father had taught her. Yeah, I agree. And to add to that, it's just like, he's very focused on giving her the tools, the resources, um, this ideology and this belief system in herself so that when she's old enough, mature enough, she's able to rely on herself and not always having to rely on him, um, which I think is, is pretty awesome because it, it could easily have been more of um, authoritarian role where he's just so obsessed with protecting her and, and and more focused on the destiny or the outcome of her of him protecting her that he could easily kind of forget that she she needs to kind of grow in and learn on her own and make those decisions herself and then for Scott I think just by default um I would say he's that just uninvolved um as you mentioned cable he was sent to the future right so whoever whether it be himself or whoever else um role models or or whatnot were probably more involved with his up, upbringing and and kind of that soldier mentality and the ide ideologies that he's built and the moral code that he's built from from being in the future than probably being with scott summers um with that, I still would say that they do have, although it's an odd relationship, they still, I would say, have a positive relationship as far as, you know, getting the work done. Yeah, I think that's a, I think those are great assessments. And I, and I want to point out too, because you, you made a great point. It would have been really easy for Cable's 17 years with hope to be about the destination and not the journey. And what's interesting is for 17 years, Cable and Bishop have competing goals, but essentially they run in parallel to each other. I mean, they're, they're essentially the opposite, but they do run parallel for 17 years. And what's fascinating is you watch Bishop focus on the end and lose himself and openly acknowledge that. And I would argue that you, you have Cable on the same mission essentially to some extent for 17 years 
and he finds himself and he becomes a better person and he really evolves as a character in a positive way because he's not a hundred percent focused on the destination it's not military boot camp for hope yes he trains her but you get the feeling that it's more of like look the goal is you need to survive and if something happens to me you still need to be able to do that but he takes the time to have the moments and give her a life that is it bleak sure but he made it the best that he could when like you said he could he had every reason to to just do his duty to keep her alive and offer her nothing else in the way of family I really respect him as a character for that. Yeah, just to add like a specific example from what we read to that is in the end, I think that the the bad guy is is it pronounced Bastion? Yeah. Bastion, yeah. So when they're fighting Bastion, Cable uh looks to to hope and asks her, What do you want to do? We could leave, right? Because again, it, it it's going back to wanting to make sure that it's her decision and that she's ready. And not out of pressure, out of this this fulfillment of her fate, right? And so she's kind of she takes a moment to internalize this question, which I think is so so important as a parent, as a father and a mother, to allow, regardless of the age, to allow your kids to kind of take that responsibility, almost treating them as an adult when it comes to decision making. Um, and he lays it out for her. He says, we can stay here or we can leave. It's up to you. And he's supportive either way. Like he's with her regardless of her decision. And she finally decides, no, we should stay because I mean, that's, that's just kind of who she is as a character anyway. And he says, um, then I guess we've got to, or sorry, he says, then I guess we've got work to do with his big cheeseburger, cheeseburger smile on his face. Right. And just, Obviously, you can just tell that he's very, very proud of her. But regardless of the decision that she was going to make, he would have stuck with her, right? Yeah, and that that scene is actually fascinating. I'm so glad you mentioned that. I, I had forgotten. That's probably one of the best moments. That's probably the moment that it all comes together, even yeah. more than him sacrificing himself, is he's trained her her whole life that she needs to stay prepared because she's going to make a difference. And he says to her, look, we could jump out of here and you'll learn what happens from a history book. You don't need to contribute to this fight and risk yourself. And like you said, the smile he gave was ridiculous, but you could tell that he was proud that he raised someone who wasn't going to run for a fight and let people die for her, at least not any longer. She was old enough to take accountability. And that was the big moment for him. I mean, I'm sure as a character, that's where he realized that he was his job as a parent was complete and that made his next sacrifice possible. Because he didn't, he avoided sacrificing himself, right? Because if he sacrificed himself, hope would have been alone. So he, this whole time he's kept himself alive solely out of, you know, what's best for her. Yeah. Imagine like Utopian or Omni-Man or Batman in that situation. <laughs> like you are going to do this or <laughs> you're a, a complete and utter failure just would not work. Right. <laughs> I mean, maybe, maybe John Kent would be like, it's your decision, son, as the tornado takes him. <laughs> hey, go read a comic and then come talk to me about Jonathan Kent. <laughs> I don't need to read a comic. I watched, I watched Kevin Costner get lifted away, dusted away. Because Jonathan Kent has that moment, but whatever. Whatever. Wait, what? He tells, he has many multiple occasions in 
very different seas, very different series from different writers telling Superman it's your choice if you want to be a hero or if you want to go do basically anything you can because you could excel at anything. But yeah, but what about guess. all those times where he says, "No, don't be a superhero. It's too dangerous. They'll hate you." So pick a lane. Well, you're comparing him talking to a ten-year-old compared to a seventeen-year-old. Semantics. Cable does the same thing with Hope, buddy. He runs with her for 17 years to give her the time to figure out how to be a hero. It's the exact same same structure, but whatever. Again, I digress to defending my characters. All right. Anybody have any other thoughts on Cable as a character, Messiah Complex, the journey through time, Bishop, anything like that before we close out this section? 10 out of 10, would recommend, read it. Also, really quick side note that keeps coming to mind that I have to have to mention that's really important. His little baby contraption that's like all decked out and it's completely meta with like a little eye slot. The most ridiculous, coolest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> yeah. That's my last thought to end this very deep discussion, just to leave you with that. That, was pretty, that was pretty cool. Any good parent should have a steel baby <laughs> Bjorn. And if your baby Bjorn's not steel, then you don't love your child enough. (laughs) So that was, for me, kind of the Paragon father in comics. We've talked about Paragon characters who really exemplify all of the attributes necessary to really flesh out, you know, the perfect example of parenthood or, or very, very close to it. But we mentioned those different parenting styles And we wanted to talk about characters as a whole and kind of flesh out those specific styles with some examples that may be good, maybe bad, maybe sit somewhere in between. The first of which I feel like is easiest to talk about would be the the authoritarian approach. And that's, again, just a recap where you believe in rules above all else. Discipline tends to be non-negotiable regardless of feelings. And and as a result, kids don't feel valued and there's definitely consequences there. So Joe, start with you. Uh, what are some examples where you feel like an authoritarian approach is, is present and, and the side effects and pros and cons of that are, are on display? Yeah. Um, honestly, probably one of the biggest one is Odin. I mean, the way he punishes Thor and the fact that he basically kidnaps a frost giant baby to put him in direct competition to Thor <laughs> Uh, speaks volumes um he's he's definitely not a terrible person obviously as we see thor become a hero i mean i and i'm obviously excluding my whole genocide um discussion or argument with this but um mainly based on even the movies but yeah definitely an authoritarian Loki, I think, is a lot more complicated because of, obviously, his origin. Um, But you do see that internal struggle with Loki that Odin definitely has a huge role to to add to that. I think Odin's a great example. And I think if there were any doubt in my mind what classification of parent he fits into, it's made very simple when I ask myself the question of, what would the MCU's version of Hela think of her father? And I think, <laughs> oh, black and white. She would probably say he's an authoritarian. He used her. He discarded her. It was all or not. It was his way or the highway. Even when he changed, you know, he, he got better as a person. 
<clears throat> and she didn't develop at the same rate that he did. And so he didn't work with her. He banished her. Like, what? Worst father ever. Well, and he does it to Thor again, right? Yeah, Odin he... sucks. I think it's also interesting because Odin's not an MCU Odin. I mean, they still try to paint him as not a villain. Even in Ragnarok, they show him like, oh yeah, he, he committed genocide, but we're going to show him on the beach and he's giving these this great advice to, to Thor, which is a great scene. But anyways, it's just like you see him not as a villain, whereas I think a lot of the authoritarian examples they're villainous i mean you've got one of the ones i thought of was trigon who is basically raven's demon father and is trying to get out and destroy the world and use raven to his advantage his advantage um one of the examples that i thought of such an extreme such an extreme example like yeah but odin's the same way i mean he commits genocide with his kids and that's kind of what trigon wants to do with raven yeah, I will say it's, it's it is interesting when you have these characters who live for so long because ultimately they have so much time to change, and the current Thor run sees Odin basically almost powerless. His powers are fading. He's drunk. He's living off world, and you know Thor is the new All Father basically. And it's interesting to watch those kind of eternal type characters. Most of them live long enough to change or die in their ways you know what i mean because an eternity is a long time to stay evil because you live long enough you die a hero you live long enough to see yourself become the villain i was actually saying i was actually saying the opposite opposite. (laughs) yeah i know (laughs) i see what you're saying you you basically live long enough if you live too long you change it's basically kind of the the thing that i was going for but for me i think a great example of an authoritarian approach is Endeavor. And I, I love and I love Endeavor as a character. I love Endeavor as a father for a lot of reasons, but one of them, which is because he's not a static character. And I think the I think Mar, um I think My Hero Academia does a really good job of this. The characters are not black and white a lot of times. They're very gray. And maybe not all of them. I may be generalizing where it's just a few of them. And I think I think regardless, I think Endeavor is the perfect example. In the beginning, he's pictured as the most authoritarian father you could possibly imagine. He's literally breeding his children for one purpose, training them to the point of causing them physical pain, and you start to see that change. And if you're watching the show, it's just starting, right, as he becomes the number one hero, has his big moment where he kind of takes out this giant Nomu obsessed with power. Nomu is a giant demon thing. He takes out a a being obsessed with power and in the struggle itself realizes that he's basically fighting himself, realizing that for so long he was obsessed with power and starting to realize the damage that he's caused. And from that moment, he begins to train change, excuse me, to the point where Shoto actually, when given the opportunity to choose uh, a hero agency for his internship, chooses Endeavor's agency. And that's a really cool dynamic. And that's a good moment. Never, He doesn't, you know, they're not warm and fuzzy, but he obviously appreciates his father, appreciates to, to some extent. And it's it's all starts with that big fight where he kind of kills the embodiment of, of the, the lust for power that he previously felt. Yeah, this is probably the the best time of, to, to bring this up. But I, I mean, we're focusing on, on fatherhood and Cable is a really good example 
of fatherhood because he is a single father, right? Um, but there is a dichotomy. And I think that that plays a huge role in kind of how the kids do turn out. Um, I think in a, in a pair, and I don't want to dive too into this because I do want to just focus on, on the fatherhood part, but you do have to look at the relationship of the mother and father. And this is usually the case in real life. Like, I'm sorry, but my mom was all right and off authoritarian. Like she was basically a dictator. It was just like, my word is the law, right? And I, I don't have a bad relationship with my mom. I absolutely have a I absolutely love my mom and have a great relationship with her. But my dad, on the other hand, was a lot more of the authoritative approach. And so I think you do have to kind of take those those two to see the results of, of how a child is raised. And I think with both Odin and Endeavor, Thor and Loki having that wonderful relationship that they do with their mom, and same with Shoto having that relationship um, with, his, with his mom, it, well... I guess you could argue against that just because of, you know, her being in a psych ward and everything, but it does get fixed. And aside from that one traumatic experience, you know, she, she is more emotionally and more loving, more emotional and more loving than you could argue Endeavor was. Uh, something very cool happens when Endeavor and his wife, so Endeavor gets injured and the wife and the kids go visit him. This is a lot later in the game, so I won't say too much about what all happened, but essentially, you know, Endeavor is at the point where he is taking responsibility for the way his family turned out. And the mom looks at him and goes, it took more than just you to like ruin this family, essentially. You know, it was all of us, whether through a lack of action or through detrimental actions, all of us played a part in this family being a mess and it's not just you. So I thought that was really cool because you're right. She's recognizing that the dichotomy is important when she could very easily just blame Endeavor. I think we're getting into this a little bit with the, um, we're talking about all these different types of parenting. I think another thing that's important that we've mentioned in the past is the idea of nurture versus nature is this idea that yes, the parents have a role. Cable is great, but it wouldn't have mattered if hope wasn't a good person too. So you can have all the great parents in the world, but in the end, it's going to come down to, what your decision was, what you did as a person. So I think you see that a lot in comics too, where, yeah, there's some great fathers, some bad fathers, but in the end, it's going to come down to, okay, did they train you well? Did they teach you well? Did you enact that in your life? If not, then it doesn't matter what, what they did for you. Yeah. I think that that's actually a great, great point. And I think that's what makes conversations like this so interesting is there's so much at play, right? Not just um, each parent, or if it's a single parent home or, or foster or wh whatever you have, it's also the decisions that those characters end up making themselves, right? Regardless of the situation that they're in. For sure. Every character has, you know, the option to overcome their circumstances or use them as an excuse. But I do think while we are, you know, we've put Cable on a pedestal in this comic and rightfully so, excuse me, in this podcast, Hope's characterization is very interesting. She is very much the what you would expect out of a daughter who was raised by a soldier on the run for 17 years. She's foul-mouthed. She's brash. She's got opinions. She, The second time she meets her grandpa, Cyclops, she shoves a gun under his chin 
and says, if you say my name again, I'll blow your jaw bone through your skull. So yeah, no, she could have used like another parental influence for sure. But, (laughs) but I think, you know, I think cable did the best that he could. And that that's as much the circumstance as it is anything else, but you know, had her mother figure that raised her with cable till she was like four or five stuck around longer you might have seen her maybe less an embodiment of cable and more a combination of the two, which again, speaks to what Jojo was saying. We, to some extent, we are the result of our parents, but we always have the option to choose and be different, better or worse. So, yeah. And that's, that's the authoritarian and some examples there and that we could go on for a long time, but want to talk a little bit about the permissive parent as well. And that's where rules are non-existent. Um, these parents are more likely to have kids who struggle academically and probably would be described by themselves and others as someone who's friends with their kids. So what are, what, I don't know, what's the first example that comes to mind? Do you guys have any for a permissive parent in comics? Start with you, Pete. So this is, you threw me off because you said first example, and I have one that comes to mind all the time, but it's not technically in comics, but I'm still going to say it. It's in pop culture and it comes to my mind all the time. And it is Stranger Things. The parents in Stranger Things are portrayed as parents that basically let their kids do whatever they want. Um, one example of this in the first season is Nancy comes home after being out past curfew. Turned out she had slept with her boyfriend and her mom is very suspicious of this. She expects it. But instead of basically condemning her, she's like, you can talk to me about it. You can tell me what happened. I won't, I won't punish you for coming out five hours past curfew. It's okay. And it's this very much idea of, okay, you're not going to punish them. You're not going to condemn them. It works for the story because the kids have the opportunity now to do whatever they want without any parents, you know, calling and checking in on them, um, which is why it's set in the 80s, too, because there's no cell phones. But uh, that's a really good example. I think I think in comics, it's I was thinking about this and it's it's a pretty hard line to define. Uh, I feel like usually they go with the uninvolved. There's not too many parents that I can think of that are permissive where they're in the picture, but they just let their kids do whatever they want. I mean, we can talk about mean girls. Is can we can we get into that on this podcast? Wait, wait, that was the first <laughs> that was the first example I thought of where she like comes up and That's she's hilarious. like, does anybody need alcohol or condoms? And I was like, what worst parent ever? And that's so funny is um, oh, I forget her name, but like she's never played a role like that since. Like that was so weird. Like she turns up being Leslie Nope, and like I can't every time I watch Parks and Rec, I'm just imagining her. <laughs> with her chihuahua and you know what i'm talking about offering your kids alcohol when they're clearly like 15 anyway sorry i'm just funny that you went straight to that one is the best example of that yeah that's funny i i mean honestly i'm i'm really struggling trying to think of that of someone that's 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 totally permissive in in comics i almost would argue that being a permissive parent is probably the hardest one <laughs> of all four um especially in comics because you know you're dealing with these these characters that have superpowers and have all these responsibilities and so i i can't even think of like villains where that was kind of the case well, I, I know if- i know there's there's examples out there but for me, just off the top of the head, I can't, I can't think of one. I think as a comic book writer, if I said, okay, I'm writing this character, his name's Pete and his parents are, you know, permissive. They just want to be their friends. I don't know that it would be worth the time to draw them in. 
and to do the scenes you know they'd be maybe once or twice if the kid struggles with direction and you're trying to show that the parents don't really care but i think that's probably why they're not really very memorable is because it wouldn't be worth screen time so to that point i think if there's a character where you've never met their parents and they never talk about their parents but they exist they're probably in this class but i i I argue against that because they would fall underneath the uninvolved because uninvolved doesn't necessarily mean not present physically it just means they're not present in the parenting so one of the when i was looking into this one of the examples they give kind of a picture for each of them and the picture of this one was uh, a dad basically reading the newspaper while his kid is just running around playing and so it's like it's the idea of you don't necessarily have to just not be there you have to you can be in the room with your kid but not be with your kid yeah i just i actually just thought of one um i guess it'd be more pop it'd be more pop culture we actually just watched it the other day was in megamind when um uh uh, what's the hero's name? Metro Man. Metro Man. I don't remember. So that. <laughs> that was quick too. Yeah, hey, we should do a spotlight quick. on Metro Man. <laughs> well, it's it's hilarious because like it, it it's such a great movie because it flips everything on its head, and I think this is the, this kind of brings to light that that permissive example why it's so hard to find, but you can find it in Mega Man Mind because everything's flipped on its head. Um, when they both are traveling to earth in their in their spaceships metro man ends up in like the rich house on the estate right and um it's christmas and he's wrapped up in a spaceship under the christmas tree lands in the christmas tree and the wife is like oh a baby and the dad's on his newspaper and he's like yes yes anything for you honey i knew you'd like that and wow and then the baby's flying like flying with the mom and she's like it flies and he's like yes dear yes all the best for you and so that that's probably the the only example i'll, I'll be able to come up with but Dude, you pulled that one out of thin air <laughs> that was impressive i mean we just recently watched it too so it was kind of on the front of my mind that's a great one that's i that's a great movie i love everything about that movie good example uh yeah so uninvolved is that third category Uh, where the parent is not present or rarely present in the child's life. Kids will struggle with self-esteem and probably have some kind of journey to find that parent. And then, you know, whether they're, whether that's a positive or a negative outcome is, you know, maybe 50, 50, depending on the story. But do you guys have any examples of uh, uninvolved parents that come to mind? So I can take this. I think one of the things I want to talk about, I think is interesting is it's not always a villain. I think there's a lot of heroes that fall underneath this category, which I like because it can be their fallacy and it can be their biggest fault. Um, one of the ones that I think is really interesting is Charles Xavier because Charles Xavier is supposed to be such a good father figure for so many students. But when it comes to his kid Legion, because of the power levels that Legion has, Charles completely just throws him to the side and he does not want anything to do with him. So I think that's a really intriguing and captivating example because we have someone who is seen as a father figure when he's actually given a kid doesn't fulfill that role that he's fulfilled for so many kids that aren't even his own. Wait, can you expand on that? Because so for those at home, Legion is like super powerful, but also super hard to control. His powers are tied to split personality disorder. But yeah. what is it about Xavier? He throws Casims aside because the power is too overwhelming. Is that what you're? Is that what you're? Yeah. Doing? So basically, he he basically abandons him. Um, so Legion's basically on his own. Ends up. Um, I haven't read a ton of Legion comics, but I was a huge fan of the Legion show actually on FX, um, and I've done research on his character in the in 
that sense. And I've read all the Wikipedia, Wikipedia. I've seen all the YouTube videos I can watch on him. So I'm trying to be uh, clear about this. So it doesn't make it seem like I'm an expert on Legion. But from what I've seen with him, Charles basically says, I can't control you. I'm too scared to basically even try um, because you're a reflection of me. And because of that, I'm basically going to abandon you. And it ends up with Legion getting himself into a lot of trouble. Wait, that I'm not I'm not the biggest Charles Xavier fan, but I would have to say that approach may be the worst I've ever heard of. Yeah. I would say is he is he worse than Batman? <laughs> it's a pretty bad example. How, a good example because it's so bad. How could you even justify that as he's like the savior mutant to like millions? And then he's like, I had one kid who I was supposed to take care of, and it's just like, nah. Yep. But go watch the results of that in Legion when he goes bonkers because of his childhood joe any examples of uninvolved parents come to mind um so with this one i think similar to permissive it's kind of difficult because it's i think it's more of a mixture unless it calls for a situation where it's just like you you just kind of have like a deadbeat dad that just wasn't there right or just they just have a zero relationship um but as far as if you look at characters that do have a relationship with their kids, but it is more uninvolved, I, w- I was actually thinking because you brought up Xavier, I was thinking of Magneto um, in House of M, right? Because he's just not involved at all in 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 Wanda or um, Quicksilver's life, and then when he is involved, it's it's usually just for his own advantages, right? His own purposes correct me if i'm wrong but if i remember right doesn't he agree that wanda should be killed doesn't he fight with doesn't he fight with quicksilver about that that's about as uninvolved and uncaring as you can be towards a child so and then talk about the consequence yeah talk about the consequences being that the kids struggle with self-esteem i mean (laughs) (laughs) Scarlet which is the the exact reason as to why we have the messiah complex right so yep yeah, no, that's a great point. Magneto and I'm not particularly drawn to either Magneto or Charles Xavier. Uh, I find them to be flawed inverses of each other, and they're both so extreme that I don't relate to either one. But that's a, that's another story. So I guess in conclusion, that final and fourth parenting style would be that desired authoritative balance where you're all about setting expectations and providing the resources uh, the kids need to meet those expectations you typically believe in boundaries as well as consequences and you explain to to your child why things matter and why the, the reason for doing them as a result as is expected these are the parents that are most likely to have responsible adults as children yeah, so I guess like the most obvious ones, like Uncle Ben, PDU brought up Jonathan Kent. Um, and it's cool because this, going back to kind of like the anti-hero and the, and the scale and the massive spectrum that kind of uh, involves all that, I think that with the authoritative one, um, it kind of leans towards that massive spectrum of, of different styles. Like I, I wouldn't put Uncle Ben and Bruce Wayne in the same category right? Yet, um, the foundation of the principles are, are very, very similar. Um, but I guess the way they carry or go about doing it through their actions, 
um, is different. Yeah, no, I wouldn't put Bruce Wayne in this category at all. What I think is interesting about Bruce Wayne is, and I'm not a Batman expert, despite how often I talk about him, but I do think that from what I've read, he t- he does evolve a little bit and take a different approach with the various Robins. And I would be interested to hear from a Batman fan if they felt like he fit into these different categories, depending on the the Robin he was currently training. To me, he seems like he was authoritarian at the beginning with Dick Grayson. Tried that approach with Jason Todd ultimately ended up being maybe skewed towards uninvolved when he realized that Jason was a lost cause to some extent and then starts to kind of fix it with Damien, whether that's his development as a character or the fact that this is the first Robin who is his actual flesh and blood. I think he seems to get closer to striking that authoritative balance. Yeah. So in contrast to that, because as as you guys know, we, we agree as, as far as Batman goes, but to contrast that, I mean, if you're, if you're looking at kind of the definition that, that PD brought up in the beginning with the authoritative approach, um, you're, you're about setting expectations and Batman does set those expectations and he provides the resources kids need, need to meet them. Um, now his expectations are extreme, but nonetheless, he does have boundaries and consequences. And then he obviously has the why behind something that matters. And then you could argue that all of those kids grow up to be responsible adults and to the point where they're more, I would say they're more responsible than Batman because although flawed, I would say they would be better contributors to society because they can relate better to the normal human being than Batman would. That's interesting. And let, hypothetically, let's say I were to concede that you were correct. I would actually counter with, well, no, I'm not saying I don't disagree with you. I'm just saying, um, I think I would then adjust my argument slightly to say that Batman's not really a father to Dick Grayson and Jason Todd and only becomes a father towards the end. Because he's basically raising soldiers at the beginning, right? I mean, these I don't think it's really portrayed that these kids have lives. Do they even go to school? Probably not. I mean, I, mean, I, I think maybe teens, Alfred teaches them. That's what I mean. I mean, what this, what is, it's weird, you know? I don't know. Could go on all day. Yeah, no, you make a great, great point. And I think that there's just such a massive, especially with Batman, there's just such a massive overlap between the two that you could probably make an argument and make a case for every situation and with every Robin. Um, so it's probably more more kind of what lies within the, the eyes of the beholder. So obviously Batman fanatics are going to think of him as being more authoritative than an authoritarian. But So I think this was one of the conversations I was excited to have because I knew Batman was going to come up. He always does. And I, this is where I defend Batman, actually. I think when it comes to a father figure, I think he's a very flawed, almost psychotic man. 
But I think when it comes to being a father and being a father to the Robins, I think he tries very hard to be authoritative. Albeit he may not succeed all the time. I think the take that he's a little different with all of them is valid. Um, but I genuinely, I think I agree more with Jojo that I think he tries hard to be authoritative and I think he checks off those boxes. He very much wants these kids to make decisions for themselves. Um, and even if he, with, we can start out with Dick with Dick. Yeah. He, he pushes him too far, um, and has a moment of weakness where he gets so mad at him that he fires him, but in the end he takes him back into open arms and he would have taken him back, but Nightwing had already come to that point where he had become autonomous and become independent. So I think in that sense, Batman's authoritative. He took the consequences. He taught him everything. He knew what the expectation was. And Dick, as a result of the training of Batman, became who he was. My counter argument would be, at least as the, at the beginning, he was less of a father and transitioned to be more of a father as he went. Because... I, do these kids have normal lives? I mean, it doesn't seem like that. I mean, it seems like he basically adopts Dick Grayson and immediately starts training him to fight crime. I mean, I don't know how Teen Titans fits well, into think, the real continuity, think, but do they go to school? Do they do the things that families do? Not since, no. So I get what you're saying, but there is something to say about, too, the fact that Dick Grayson wanted to fight crime. It wasn't so much that he was forced into it. Bruce Wayne took him in. Dick had just witnessed the murder of his parents and wanted to do something about it. How, so old, was, how old was Dick Grayson when he was adopted? Probably 10. How many 10-year-olds get what they want? <laughs> I'm just saying, at some point, you have to accept that Batman is a good father figure. I think he's so trying my parents, to be so. If my parents let me do what I wanted to do at 10 years old, I would stand here in front of you and tell you that they were not good parents. But he didn't let him do it immediately. He trained him and guided him the whole process through. So I yeah. think I don't, I just, I don't see I mean, in a sense, he's doing the same thing Cable's doing with Hope, where he's training her to be able to take up the role that he sees the potential in. I think one of the great things with Dick is he sees Dick as a great leader. And he says to Dick, I, one of my favorite panels of all time is when Dick is Robin. And he says to him, he says, yeah, when you're on the Justice League someday, if I can be on it, so can you. And Dick responds by saying, you think I'm going to be on the Justice League someday? And Batman says, no, I think you're going to lead the Justice League someday. So you get these moments of him where he believes in his kid. He's trying to train him. Um, I think all of the Bat family have a different relationship with Bruce, but even Jason Todd has a respect for him. It's really funny. In DC, they explore this a little bit. Um, Batman had died in it, and Jason Todd had buried him. He was the only one that was around to bury him. And underneath his grave, on his tombstone, he basically says, like, he's a great father, um, a great hero and a bastard. Like <laughs> he's just like completely like, I respect you for who you are, but I also hate you still a little bit. So there's, there's a, a controversy there, but I think all of the Robins hold him in a high regard, obviously, because they all still oh, yeah. accept that. No. And for the, for the, the mob of Batman fans that are probably going to egg my house, my official stance is that he was more authoritarian at the beginning. I do think he was a father to these kids. I wonder, I've always struggled with the idea of, it seems like, yes, we can compare him to Cable and say, well, that's what Cable did with Hope. He trained her to be a soldier. The situation and necessity yeah. dictated that, where I don't think that's the case with that's Batman. Fair. Now, if Batman said I the Gotham School District is garbage and I'd rather raise the kids here, maybe he did say that. And if he said that, I'm totally on board with that because 
I can relate to feeling that in real life. So that's totally different. <laughs> and, and feel free to come at me. And I would love to hear these counter arguments, but I, I think a guy who trained Dick Grayson to be a soldier when he had a different mindset, kicked him out. I just don't jump straight to authoritative. I, I think he at least skews towards authoritarian at the beginning, but I've seen him on panel give Damien break time to play and be a kid. And I think he grows into that role. Yeah. I think it's to jump off of that. I think talking about Damien's important. I don't want to talk too much about Tim Drake, honestly, because I'm not the biggest fan of Tim Drake as a Robin. I think he's kind of the forgotten Robin, which Tim Drake fans can kill me for saying that, but I just don't think he adds that much to the stories. Um, but Damien being his kid coming from, you know, Ra's al Ghul, Tali al Ghul, coming from the Society of Assassins, League of Assassins, whatever you want to call it, um, was trained to be an assassin. And then by being with Batman, he learns the idea of justice, not vengeance. And Batman struggles to teach him that. And Damien really struggles to accept it, but because of his time with Batman is able to overcome his tendencies, which are basically to murder everyone that comes in his crosshairs. And he's so like I 10 think years old. So that's a wild, Damien's terrifying. So the fact that Bruce can even keep him, yeah, the fact that Bruce can even keep him in line is crazy. So I think that's a good example too. And in another regard, I think it's important to understand with Damien that Bruce accepted him in after 10 years of not knowing he even existed. And he still accepted him under his, his wing, which well, is- Batman's never had any hesitation to adopt <laughs> fatherless <laughs> kids. Like, I, I mean, I crap on him all the time, but yeah, it seems like the, the doors of Wayne Manor are always open for the homeless children. Like I'll give him that. I just, it's my, it's my, my issue comes from the lifestyle that they immediately lead and how it doesn't really seem like they have a choice, but I digress. I do this mostly just to get people riled up. I think at least in my family and in my wife's family, it's like the youngest child always gets, it just seems like the youngest child is the one that gets away with everything. Whereas the oldest child is probably the one that suffered the most. And I think that's just, that, that just kind of makes sense in, in, in life. Parents get old, they get tired or they just learn. They're just like, you know what? Like, it doesn't really matter what I what I do at this point. It's I mean, they're going to maybe learn on their own. So I, I and maybe you can confirm this, PD. But it, would you say that that's kind of the the circumstances under Batman with Dick Grayson being maybe pushed the hardest and and Damian being pushed the least? Yeah, I will definitely agree with you. I I wouldn't say he's completely authoritarian, but I do agree in the sense that I think he starts out more authoritarian and then moves closer toward authoritative. I think he's, even with Dick, I think he's in the middle with authoritative and authoritarian. I don't think he's full authoritarian uh, because he still gives him his choices. But uh, with Damien, he gets to a point where he's quite authoritative. One of the greatest examples of this, I love this series way more than I thought I ever would. Um, it's a series called Super Sons where it's Superboy and Robin, Damien Wayne together. And basically Bruce Wayne and Superman give their kids a chance to work together and fight small level crimes. And it is way better than it ever should be. Watching these two, a 13 year old, a 10 year old go around and fight crime together with their mindsets is hilarious. The relationship between the two is so good. And Bruce gives him all the tools he needs. He says, here, I have an underground, I have an underground bunker right here. You guys can use it for your home base. And here are my toys. Go play with them. Um, so I, I love that series. I think it's a good example of Bruce Wayne as a father and Superman as a father. 
I think it's easy to fall into being authoritarian because you get to the point of, oh, I know I need to be there for my kids. So do this, do that. Don't do this. Don't do that. If you do this, you do that. Like, it's just, it's very simple. Um, it's very like almost like a military, right? You're a cadet. You do exactly what I say. I'm the colonel. Don't ask me questions. It's yeah. way more work to explain why. Yeah. Or yeah. to explain why and to give them be lazy in the sense of saying, all right, I'll give you the tools. Go ahead. Try to do some things on your own. And when it blows up in your face, which it probably will, and we even see it in Invincible before Omni-Man goes haywire, he's trying to be very authoritarian with um, Invincible and his mom has that authoritative approach of saying, no, you need to be your own hero. Um, sure. You have the tools to do so. Yeah. Yeah. You guys, I mean, seriously, explaining things to your kids is so hard. You have no idea how hard it is to explain to my seven month old <laughs> why he's not supposed to throw up all the time. Um, I do want to ask you guys this and maybe this isn't as exciting of a question because your kids are, are so young, but where do you guys fall on this scale as of right now? And where do you hope you'll be with specific and be specific too? So I'll open up. I think we all strive to be authoritative and my kid's a little bit older than Trey's. Um, she's 16 months old just to give some context. I think my wife and I will try to be authoritative. I will say it's extremely hard, even with a little kid. I think the hardest thing I struggle with, and this is going to make me seem like a terrible father, which is it's hard at this age not to be uninvolved because it takes a lot of effort to be involved in a kid who all they want to do is just run around the room and just run in the room, pick up toys, play with them two minutes, throw them to the ground and run to the next section. And so it's, it's hard to sit down and play with my kid because there's only so much I can do. Um, so I have found that I've really enjoyed, you know, throwing my kid, throwing my kid up in the air, a couple inches or whatever, playing with them, things like that are really fun. Hearing my baby laugh is incredible. Um, I think being authoritative at this young of an age, I think it more means, uh, just trying to be present, um, and I mean, you're not setting expectations. I think it's a good, good conversation. And I guess I'd like to give my answer really quick. I agree with what Pete said. I mean, my son is seven months. The most interesting thing he's done and he's adorable and he's growing and it's, it's getting much more interesting. But that said, the most interesting thing he does is take little pieces of food and put them in his mouth. And that's a big step. And I'm excited for that. At the same time, I can't lie. It takes 20 minutes to feed him. At some point in that, it's very tempting to pull my phone out. Like, I mean, that's just the reality. Exactly. I mean, you can only watch a kid eat cheese puffs for like five minutes, but that's just how we're wired, right? I, mean, I don't know what my parents did when I was eating cheese puffs slowly and poorly, but I imagine they pulled out a newspaper or something at some point. I think like we've talked about, it's very easy to be authoritarian. I think I skew towards that, but I, I actively think about the why. And I think, and I've, I think very often about how I want to be authoritative. So I think at least at this stage in my life, if my kid were older, I would put the effort in and I hope nothing changes to, to deter that because I think the reason, the explanation of why it sets your kids up for success. You can build the best habits in the world. I mean, I like to think about there's a 30 for 30 on ESPN where freak, I forgot his name, Todd, excuse me, Todd Marinovich was trained to be the ultimate quarterback and he had a choice, but it ultimately became very Spartan and he was, his life was completely ruled. And I don't know that he knew the why behind every decision he made. And he was the top quarterback recruit and went to the USC. And as soon as he had some freedom, 
started doing drugs, started getting drunk, was so talented still. He ended up being a first overall pick, but couldn't handle the freedom. And I think that was a result of an authoritarian, an authoritarian household. So the why is really important because that's where you develop future decision-making. I choose X, Y, and Z because I know the outcome is this, or I do it with this, this in mind. And I think if you put the time in as a parent, your kids are more likely to make good decisions as adults. And that's all you can do. You can set them up for success, whether or not they achieve it is ultimately up to them. I think that what we're trying to get at here is in the end, you just got to strive to be authoritative. You got to strive to set the boundaries, set the rules, help them understand the consequences of their actions, give them some autonomy but I mean, you're not going to be perfect at it. I don't think there's a perfect parent that does authoritative parenting. Um, if they're out there, maybe it's cable, but um, I'm not going to take my kid time traveling to learn how to be an authoritative parent. So I'll do the best I can and um, try to be as actively engaged in my kid's life and enjoy those moments of those big steps that are, uh, they're monumental. It's like you were saying with, with your kid, with the food. I remember hearing my baby laugh for the first time was like the coolest moment in my entire life. I was like, this little thing I've been giving milk to for the past four months can laugh it can make a noise like you have those moments that are incredible and you do your best to enjoy them when they come but now my baby laughs it's not that big of a deal anymore and so I think just being there and trying to have an authoritative mindset is what's going to lead us to all become cables in our respective lives <laughs> and we could definitely do worse than be like cable we'll just end it there and thank you all for being involved we really appreciate it Life lessons from two parents with less than two years combined experience and one hoping to join that club soon. So take our advice for what it's worth. (laughs) (laughs) You can cut that out, whatever. Maybe this is more of a cry out to like, we need advice and we need help. (laughs) Leave us a five-star review with your best parenting tips and we'll read them on air. 